Welcome to episode number 100 of the Blister Podcast, which is a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Pep Fugis has always lived at the forefront of skiing, and he is now looking to move the industry forward once again. So we talked to Pep about growing up on his family farm in Oregon, his remarkable and long film career, his favorite Seth Morrison story, sorry, that one was primarily for my own benefit, his long relationship with K2 and his favorite K2 skis, his decision to go back to school, and his even bigger recent decision to join the team at Wonder Alpine. And before we get started, I want to say a big thank you to you for listening, whether you just recently have found the Blister Podcast or whether you've been with us since episode number one. This has been a whole lot of fun and a very interesting ride, and I can honestly say that with 100 episodes now under our belt, it really truly feels like we are just getting started. So if you've been enjoying some of these 100 conversations, it would mean a whole lot to us and help the cause if you would tell your friends about the show and leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes. We'll even make you a deal. If you agree to do those two little things, we'll agree to do another 100 episodes. That's a pretty good deal, right? And with that, let's now get to our conversation with Pep Fugis. Well, Pep, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing great. I am at the design lab in Salt Lake City, Utah, just trying to get orientated in my new position. <laughs> Your new position. Well, we're going to be talking about this new position and this new chapter of yours, and we're going to be talking about some of these past chapters of yours too. Um, but this is a pretty interesting time in your life right now. I think that's fair to say? Uh, I think that's, yeah, maybe even an understatement. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Um, So you have this new role and position in relationship with Wonder Alpine, a company that I have come to know quite well uh, since we just had Matt Sturbins here and Charlie Dimmler here from Checker Spot. Um, They all just were here in Crested Butte. And uh, as we were approaching our... 100th our centennial episode of the blister podcast as i was looking at this a a month or two ago i was like you know it would be a really cool thing to finally talk to pep maybe this would be the right time and then all these announcements came out and so i didn't quite realize that this was how you know the timing of everything was going to work you know but here we are and uh sounds very serendipitous (laughs) i think i think so so, Pep, have they figured out an official title for you yet? Do, do you have a business card yet? Uh, I do not have a business card, um, but I am the VP of Marketing and Product Development. When did you first start talking with Matt Sturbins about this possibility? Probably April. Um, you know, I had known about his desire to create this brand, they were developing skis. Um, We had gone on a few ski missions together and he had some prototypes. Um, I think it was like late April or early May, Matt came over one day and he said, what do you think about helping me launch this brand? I I mean, at first I was like, 
you know, it's kind of a cool idea, but at the same time, like, I'm comfortable where I am, like, you know, things are good, things are going smoothly. And, um, you know, I talked to my wife and she's like, yeah, it's like, that's a huge risk. And, you know, I'm not super comfortable with it. And I'm like, well, what if I'm able to provide like more value than just being an athlete for the company? And um, I went back to Matt and said, hey, you know, what do you think about this idea? And he said, well, I'll go back to Charlie and see what he thinks. Charlie like jumped on board immediately. So yeah, I think it was like another, another week and a half went by and we sat down kind of hit it off. I was very honest about where I was um, in my career. And um, I'd also been working for my family business for about seven months at that point. Um, my mom, started Rising Sun Farms, which is a gourmet food manufacturing company, producing mostly sauces and dressings and other stuff. Um, and I was working in operations. Anyways, um, I had a lot going on. I'm also <laughs> going to school, going to uh, business school. And anyway, we hit it off and he's like, you should come out to the Checker Spot Lab and meet the team. And I flew out to uh, Checker Spot headquarters and got to see the whole process from how the molecules of algae are novel and how the algae is created, how the oil is extracted, and then how in turn that oil is turned into you know a physical um, material. In this case, it was their their composite foam core. Yeah, I really like the work atmosphere, like all the people there are super passionate, very intelligent, very motivated. And um, yeah, we worked out some details and here we are. There are still so many people who I think just understandably think of you as kind of this icon of modern skiing. And now you're working with this company that's interested in doing new stuff with materials. Can you help us connect the dots a little bit on this? Um, talk a little bit first. All, let's go all the way back, just growing up. Sure. Um, I grew up in Southern Oregon on a 300-acre farm. The actual farm space was much smaller. We, um, we lived pretty off the grid. We didn't have phone. We didn't have electricity, at least until... I was maybe six or seven. We might've gotten a phone when I was four or five, but we, yeah, my parents had found like two yurts and uh, it, I don't know, it was kind of, I mean, in my mind, it was completely ideal and normal. Um, the two yurts were sufficient. We had plenty of food, shelter, heat, et cetera. You know, we had an outdoor outhouse I grew up there. We subsequently um, moved into Ashland after my parents started developing their manufacturing of pestos and salad dressings and these cheese appetizers called tortas. Anyways, they needed to scale up. Like we, we didn't realize that semi trucks couldn't come down this old like dirt road and cross a single lane bridge. And so we, we moved our facility into town and we also moved into town to be closer to school. I remember 
I was the first one on the bus, last one off, like two hours into school and two hours back every day. It was, it was a bit cruel. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, I didn't know any better and I, I enjoyed it and it probably helped shape who I am today. Wait, um, the bus rides? Or just this whole, this whole picture you're painting of, of growing up? Well, the picture for sure, but the bus ride <laughs> as well. I mean, we had to, yeah, I mean, we had to commute up to the bus. We had like an old, old Subaru. There was this guy who lived up the road. Um, I actually, I don't know his name, his formal name, but he was called the Goat Man. And he was probably in his like 80s, but we'd pick him up almost daily. He would walk all the way into town. We're like, you know, 35 miles from town. It was, I, yeah, we'd see him like every couple of days and like pick him up and at least bring him to the bus stop and he'd go from there. Um, but yeah, the bus stop just, you know, being forced to communicate with people for uh, hours. And I think I was one of the youngest, but um, yeah, I think that was fairly formulaic, especially growing up in an environment that, you know, you have to entertain yourself and respect nature. And that was fairly formulaic and at least my like environmental side. So how do you go from this to getting attached to K2 and blowing up? <laughs> this is a uh maybe not the most obvious trajectory that you're laying out so far. Sure. Well, my parents were very busy with, um, with their business and, uh, they knew I had a passion for skiing. I, there were some family friends that introduced us at a young age and, you know, we'd go to the ski swaps and get the old used beat up gear and, um, passes for kids were either free or like, incredibly inexpensive. So that ended up being my babysitter. Um, and like the only thing that I would do during the weekends, like friends that didn't ski, like they didn't even ask me what I was going to do during the weekend because they knew. <laughs> and so, yeah, my parents just knew I had a big passion for skiing and um, gave me the opportunity to um, go to boarding school. So where I could kind of pursue my ski dreams. Um, and I skied competitive moguls for four years and the last year that's when like twin tips were coming into play and starting to, um, enable so much more creativity and park skiing was becoming a thing in skiing where it was snowboarding for so like you couldn't even go in a snowboard park if you had skis on. So yeah, I got got involved in the free ski scene, went up to summer camp and just like totally got hooked on, on park skiing and just the freedom that it gave me and creativity and all of that. Um, I went out to Mammoth right after I kind of weaseled my way into Parkasaurus, my senior year of high school. Um, and you know, got a few published shots published from that event in Parkasaurus and you know there was kind of a, there was a lot of hype around me from that event um, I went up to Mammoth and Oakley just happened to be doing a photo shoot with Tanner and um, JP Auclair and Falou and 
Boyd Easley and Ewan Olson, and I was I had been staying with Tanner for that time period. I was introduced to Greg Strokes and um, Pat Mack and a couple of the other marketing guys who were there. Um, and I was just skiing through the pipe and and I think Chris O'Connell said, hey, do you want to shoot some photos with us? And I said, oh yeah, sure. And so we shot some photos and by the end of that day, I think I mostly shot, we just shot in the pipe and he was like, well, we'd, we'd really be stoked to sign you to the team and um, talk about contract. Like, would you want to shoot with us for the next couple of days? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> 100%. Um, so yeah, I think that was really what put my foot in the door. I had been doing, um, us open I think I did the U S open that, that year. And anyways, there was, there was some buzz and, um, I knew at that point that I was going to forego college and move out to mammoth as mammoth was just like where it was at, at that time. Um, so yeah, I moved to mammoth the next year. What year are we talking? Let's see, I graduated in 2001. So, yeah, that was 2002. At that point, is the decision to forego college, is that one difficult at all? Or are you like, I can go to college later. This is amazing right now. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a hard choice <laughs> <Okay>. at all. <laughs> I didn't think so. I was fully committed. <laughs> is this because it just wasn't your thing then? Or is this because you already were thinking in high school, I'm going to make a go of this as a skier? Um, in high school, I, I definitely thought I was going to make it as a skier just because of all of the hype that industry folks were giving me at the time. Um, like initially at Parkasaurus, I, I got together with CR and Tanner and um, a couple of the other poor boy skiers and they were like petitioning Johnny to to film me for their next movie and um, yeah that summer uh, you know we in, we chatted more and uh, ended up filming with them um, but yeah I think like all of those reasons kind of combined like there was there, there didn't really see, like, I was, I think I was at a point in my education too, where I was like, I just want to take a break. Like my parents were very supportive of it. They're like, I think it's a great thing to do. Like we also traveled the world and I was like, well, I don't really want to travel the world. I want to pursue this dream. And they're like, well, great, go for it. Like you have to do what you love in life. And, um, yeah, they were, you know, with that, Kind of blessing i was like wow <laughs> i have given myself no other choice right <laughs> right so you would date your filming career is it fair to call that 2002 is when you really start filming a bunch uh 2003 i definitely started filming a lot more um 2002 um i was part of a film called scandalous I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I, I think I may have missed that one. There's, there's a bunch though. I blame you. There's a lot of footage, Pep. Yeah, that that one was produced by David Levin. And yeah, it's a good archival 
movie that you should check out sometime. Okay. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I think there's, I think, I think in that movie we have a segment where um, me and Eric Spreeder drinking 40s <laughs> and skiing park at Mammoth. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do when you ski park at Mammoth, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Given this really long film career of yours, name the either number one and or number two and three people that you have spent the most time in the mountains with while filming. I mean, I, I would say the Nimbus crew, uh, Andy, Eric, and Chris. Uh, especially Andy because we were K2 teammates and we had, we probably had more shoots because of marketing initiatives as well as like testing trips and stuff like that. Um, man, the Nimbus question, I mean, that deserves its own like 10 part series, I think. But uh, given that we, we've got a lot of ground and topics to cover, standout moment from all of this time working with Nimbus? Holy smokes. I mean, yeah, some of the most fun was shooting for hunting yeti um i mean idea that was kind of the precursor to nimbus um and i think that that movie really made us all realize that it was possible for us to go out on our own and uh big kudos to it for eric to eric eiberg for um kind of setting that intention and idea um into our minds yeah i mean i idea was great because it was everything was fairly fresh new like we were skiing without poles we were just goofing off we were kind of pushing each other um i mean i remember i think one of the funnest sessions and kind of progressive sessions for me was out in hood um hitting a big step down with andy and eric um and ike isaac smith um who was a skier who kind of turned filmer for our subsequent projects. But it was, we were just, yeah, sessioning a big step down and everybody was nailing like 180s and fives and cab fives. And I think Andy had a huge zero on that thing. It was a super rad moment in my career for sure. A bit of a related or tangential question. I asked you, who you've spent the most days out in the mountains with when filming, who have you spent the most days out in the mountains with when you're not filming? Um, my wife and kids. <laughs> wife and kids. Yeah. And of pro skiers, when not filming, who have you spent the most time out in the mountains with? Um, probably Tanner, because I, I lived with Tanner for two years in mammoth and then lived with them for like a year and a half or so in salt lake city <laughs> well there's like i said there is a lot of footage out there but it, it'd be fun to be a, i don't know not a fly on the wall maybe just a person on the chairlift or on the skin track but it seems like those could have been some pretty cool days out there the two of you together yeah it was yeah we had we had tons of fun together do you have a favorite seth morrison story um yes there's this one that comes to mind when uh let's see it was it was eric cr 
Seth and myself on a matchstick trip to Norway. Um, the conditions were okay. We, we had some snow, some lulls, some snow. Um, and we get up into the Alpine and we just had like kind of tough shooting conditions or a lot of clouds, um, a lot of waiting around. And, you know, we get to a zone and every single time without fail, like CR and I would point out like, oh, Seth's probably going to hit that. And it's kind of like jokingly like, oh, Seth would probably hit that. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, Seth like goes up to the top and just lays out massive backflips off these just huge prows and stomps pretty much all of them. I think, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> We were like, we were like, we just felt like put in our place. Like, oh, we're like the kind of <laughs> dorky, like switch skiers, you know, like this guy's out here just like throwing down hammers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when and how do you get hooked up with Patagonia? A call out of the blue from Josh Nielsen, essentially. Um, I had been dropped by Oakley Outerwear that year, and it was like the biggest blessing in disguise. Like, I, I think maybe like a month or two later, I wasn't really looking for, wasn't looking for anything, but um, got a call from Josh and said, hey, we're looking for ski athletes, and we think that you might be a good fit. Um, would you come out to Ventura? and essentially interview or like just kind of check us out, see see if you like the Kool-Aid and if you do, um, let's talk. I remember thinking like, man, that's an interesting fit. Like, okay, Pep's a super visible skier, but at the, I didn't know the backstory about you or where you'd kind of come from or some of your interests and I think maybe in hindsight, that relationship with Patagonia starts to look a little more obvious or something. They're a very thoughtful company and they, they don't just sign people on just so they can get more visibility in a certain marketplace. Like they want to, you know, vet their personnel, the people that work for them, the people that are associated with them. Um, to see if their values align with the company's core values. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why they've, they've done so well is that the, you know, the people that they bring on board really are passionate about um, environmentalism, um, you know, being a good steward to our environment and um, just doing things, whether... You know, I mean, they're a huge clothing manufacturer and they know that their industry is like very, like they pollute. They're one of the most polluting industries in the world. Um, and, but they know that they can do better and they're working on, you know, manufacturing processes, um, you know, deriving all of their materials from recycled um, sources, like, yeah, their internal core philosophy is like if they're going to bring somebody on board, they want to have some kind of alignment. Part of your 
responsibilities at Wonder now, as you've mentioned, involve product development. So I'm curious to talk to you a bit about some of the skis that you were on at K2 and that you were involved with in the creation of some of those things. Any of those skis stand out most to you and why? Oh, man. Um, I've skied so many skis over the years. It's hard to identify. I mean, there were, there were certain years of the fugitive that I loved. Like I loved the very first one. Um, I loved the, let's see, the third iteration. God, so many, like, I loved the AK Maiden that we ended up rockering, which was, was the predecessor of the Hellbent. I loved the Hellbent. (laughs) I absolutely loved the Seth. I mean, there are so many different characteristics of skis that I like, and I like, you know, feeling how different skis maneuver, react, and then, you know, it. every ski that you get on is like, it gives you another opportunity to learn. You can either ski how the ski wants to be skied, or you can try to overpower that ski and ski it how you want to. But there's, of course, like the happy medium and harmony where like, whatever vision you have of skiing, whatever energy you want to create in a turn or press or air, whatever the the particular scenario is, like whatever you want to do in that, in that space is like intuitive. Um, Those are like the most fun skis um, in kind of an overall versatile fashion. And like there was a, a Shredder 102, that was like that. It had slight rocker, um, medium waist width, but you could ski it all the time um, and have tons of fun on it. And then there are like more specific skis. Like um, I really enjoyed the Mindbender this last year. Like you can just feel confident in, you know, whatever comes your way, you can, you know, the skis will manage um, and I definitely got myself into some situations <laughs> where I'm like scared the hell out of myself because I was so confident in, you know, in the skis and what they could do. So wait, are you talking about, are we now talking about like the Mindbender 108 or the 116? Uh, the 108. Yep. Yeah. With a metal integration, it was just, it's super solid. Yeah. It's a good ski. Yeah. You can go fast and take chances. (laughs) As they say. Have your own preferences in skis evolved quite a bit over the years? Or do you think that there's been more consistency um, in terms of what you're into, what you're like, the type of feel, the flex patterns, you know, softer or stiffer? Um, I've always, I think I've always been on more of the soft side but in like the, I, I don't know, more of like the medium, medium to soft. Um, but like, I've, I think I've realized over the years that a lot of skis have like certain value depending on conditions and terrain and all of that. So, I mean, now I've been, I think I've been more of like a quiver Quiver skier, you know, like bring the right boards out for the right conditions or what I'm feeling like I want to be super playful today or I want to go super fast or 
sometimes you can bring out that middle ground ski that does it all. And um, I mean, a lot of times I, I end up skiing that middle ground ski because it does it all. And I like the versatility of a, of a really versatile ski. You mentioned the first and the third iteration of the Fugitive. Talk a little bit about those. The first year, what was the top sheet of that one? The top sheet was red. Not just, not just red tips and tails with like the wood veneer down the middle. No, it was fully red on the tail of the ski. There's um, a police photograph of me. Like uh, That's right. Um, yeah, and that ski, we, I had the, the idea that we could create a ski that was more similar to a snowboard so that we could create um, a cup, like a progressive flex pattern that would allow for like locking into presses on boxes and rails and, you know, doing butters, but also having the stability and platform to, you know, hit 100-foot jumps at Mammoth. So that was a really fun ski. It was, like, obviously very, very playful, but it was still able to hold up. Um, the idea was to create a little bit of stiffness, and the tips have went from, like, stiff, soft, stiff underfoot, and right in the forebody, um, and then the same kind of continu- continuous flex pattern in the rear. Um, and then dead center mounting the ski. So you're right in the middle of the turn radius. So you could ski backward and forward, kind of the same. I think our ideas have changed since then on what, you know, how a ski performs backward. Your weight is a little bit distributed, quite a bit different when you're skiing backwards versus forwards. But anyways, yeah, I, I like, I love that ski and, um, yeah, maybe someday I'll get back on and do some butters on them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then the third iteration. Yeah, the, the third was a bit wider. Um, it was the um, black top sheet. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was still super playful, but it also bridged the ground of like your all-around like super versatile ski. Um, yeah, I had kind of like a medium radius turn, like there wasn't anything that really stood out about the ski, but it was really fun. It had a lot of energy, a lot of pop, like, yeah. Shifting gears quite a bit, I think you've brought up a lot of people and named a lot of names in this conversation, but if asked the question, who have been some of your biggest influences, whether in skiing or the way that you look in the world? Who, who springs to mind? Um, well, Eric Pollard certainly springs to mind as far as, I guess, overall philosophy of life and his approach to skiing. And I guess I've always, I've admired the way that he's approached his career that you know the way he approaches mountains um and very other various other aspects of his life yeah i really appreciated like how he's done it as far as influences skiing man there are so many um 
I mean, I love like all types of skiing. So, I mean, I'm all across the board. Like there were like the big mountain chargers, like, like Will Burks and Micah Black and Seth and, you know, JP was a huge inspiration. And then to the park riders um, who were local at the time in Mammoth, like Roy Silva, Peter Merhoff, Willie, um, and Tanner and uh, Mikhail Deschanel had like a really unique approach and he just looked like he was meant to be on the mountain and like he was just super creative and fluid and I think anybody at that time really looked to him for style essentially and gosh who else like Abma, Andy Mayer, um, yeah I mean the list goes on and on and like up to the new creative like super super creative park skiing that's going on these days um like henrik phil casabon those guys are truly on a different different level (laughs) (laughs) getting weird out there yeah just like they're the complexity of tricks that they do combined with the style is like it's incredible i know i just have to slow-mo everything henrik does Cause I just, I can't, I just can't keep up, you know? It's like, so if I, if I slow it down or watch it 20 times, I think I can generally tend to figure out what he just did. It's pretty remarkable. So here's a, here's a, I don't know. I think this was a tougher question. If we're going to break skiing down into a number of different segments or disciplines, if we think about say Alpine ski racing, or big mountain comps, or like big mountain film segments, or park skiing, or urban skiing, or backcountry skiing. Is there a specific segment that you are particularly impressed with what's happening in that segment? Uh, Good question. I mean, backcountry skiing has certainly progressed a ton, and watching like Kai and Logan Pajoda and that contingency ski is just as incredible. Um, I, I would say, yeah, that and street skiing has incredibly creative and I don't know, they're taking huge risks and doing things very fluidly. I mean, it's a hard, hard thing for me to pinpoint like where there is more progression because, well, I don't know, I guess in park skiing, like, there hasn't been too much. Uh, I mean, for a long time, for probably like five years before the last two, like it seemed like we were ramping up and every day you'd see, oh, like a new double, a new triple, like, you know, a new creative way to spin on two rails or flip on, flip off, like all those things. And now, you know, there's still new tricks being thrown and that progression. But I think just, I guess the speed at which it's progressing has slowed down. And there's so much, I think there's so much room to grow in the backcountry because there, you have the ability um, to be creative just because of the, the terrain that you're um, subject to, you know. Switching gears once again, I'd, Love to ask you about, you know, you returned to school. Talk a little bit about 
how or why did it feel like the right time to go get your undergraduate education? And then what are you studying? And, and was that an easy call to figure out what then you wanted to study? Good question. Well, I, let's see, we were, my wife and I, well, then we weren't married, um, but girlfriend and I, we were, she was pregnant. We were not pregnant. I hate that when people say that. <laughs> I catch myself doing it all the time now. Um, and I don't know, I think for, for so long, like I, I wasn't really intellectually challenged, um, just going through life as a skier. Um, I think that was part of it. Another part was like, hey, it's, it's probably a really good idea to go back to school in case like things don't work out in the ski industry. And then I also, I wanted to educate myself on like, I don't know, I guess I saw that there was, there were so many avenues in the world that need help, like that there needs to be some sort of impetus for change in relationship to like how we interact with our environment on either a day-to-day -day basis or whatever, just to, and I wanted to educate myself on how I could be a part of building, um, you know, a more thoughtful environment where, um, you know, people took into consideration, which I realize it's a kind of a luxury these days to do, but to think about how we can, you know, better our society um, and not pollute so much. And my, my initial thought was to go into um, engineering. And I started in engineering and uh, I realized that if I was still gonna ski during the winter time, it wasn't gonna work uh, for my schedule. So it just wasn't feasible. I would have been on like an eight year track just to get through my undergrad. So it's like, well, what else am I really interested in? And, you know, the, the fugitive is a good example because the fugitive represents like my fundamental philosophical ideas about like the corporate engine that um, kind of runs everybody's lives these days. And the fugitive was, you know, my escape from that world, which was kind of funny that K2 agreed to put that on their skis. So I've, I felt like, oh, maybe if I go into business, um, I can help, you know, change people's mentality and help them see that, you know, there are value values, um, both monetarily speaking and like kind of morally and ethically speaking to um, create better processes that are more um, environmentally conscious. That resonates a lot with my own kind of take on this. I mean, I used to just think of business as kind of being a very, very dirty word. It's like, you know, you meet somebody who it's like, what do you do? And they're like, oh, I'm in business. And I'd be like, cool. So basically that means you have no values. And the only thing you care about is money to the exclusion of every other value in the world. Um, and there are certainly businesses out there that are doing things in, you know, a more responsible way than others for sure. But I like this idea that increasingly 
maybe this gets baked into the very core of business or concept of business that we need to think about best practices and we need to think about long-term impacts. And in fact, when you think about all that, maybe going back to 2002 or 2003, um, like having young Pep hearing this older Pep, you know, that, that he is studying business, maybe young Pep would have been like, what the hell is that about? But if you went back in time and explained it in the way that you sort of just have, I'd like to think that young Pep would actually be like, yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense. Like, good on you. Yeah, I think, I think that's an apt uh, description. I mean, my, my parents were in business and, and they always, right? So it, it wasn't too far off for me. Um, and they're always like, you know, our business is all about our employees. Like, it's not about the money that we make. It's about the value that we provide um, internally and externally. Um, and that value is, you know, through where we get our ingredients and, you know, how happy our employees are and how we can, you know, help our, yeah, our employees and our clients and our customers. You know, like the human chauvinism principle is very ripe in business. Like as long as you're not hurting anybody directly, like feel free to do as you please. Um, and that doesn't really take the indirect harm that is being caused through processes or pollution, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, let's take responsibility. Um, let's be transparent. Let's like, let's do things for, for the right reasons. Of course, like we as humans, like we love, we are creatures of comfort. And, you know, once we develop like a liking for something, it's hard to go back and say, oh, we, I don't want this anymore. So yeah, like how do we move forward in like a, in a pragmatic way that we don't lose the things that are dear to us, um, but you know, how, you know, what are the avenues where we can make gains um, environmentally speaking? And it sounds like you're now in a good position to be thinking through these things with Matt Sturbins and Charlie Dimler, given some of the conversations that I've recently had with those guys. Um, it sounds like there's a real like-mindedness here and that you guys are already having some very practical conversations and now it's just about keeping those conversations going and moving things forward. Absolutely. Yeah. They're really fun conversations to have. And, and uh, yeah, I like, like scrutinizing all the things that we do and um, like looking at how we can change them for the better and be less pollution, uh, polluting and um, you know, waste less, yeah, yeah, they're really it's it's really been enjoyable so far. It's what am I three days in now? <laughs> so working with Sturbins is actually proving to be okay. Like it's he's not too much of a drag <laughs> over there. No, he, he really keeps to himself. He wouldn't know it, but uh, just kidding. It's it's uh, yeah, it's great. He's he's really easy to work with. Um, so yeah, it's it's been good so far. Well, Pep, this has really been a pleasure and it's been really fun to talk about some of these past chapters of your life and what you are 
currently up to at present. And yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see where you guys take Wonder Alpine. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time and um, I enjoyed it just as much as you. Well, listen, you take care and we will talk to you real soon. All right, thanks. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Pep for the conversation. And you can check out more of what Pep is up to at his website, pepfugis.com. And Pep is also very easy to find on the social channels. So we trust that you are clever enough to go find him on those. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. And again, thanks to you for listening. And don't forget, you know, we made a deal. You tell your friends about this podcast and leave us a nice little rating in iTunes and we'll agree to put out another 100 episodes. And episode number 101 is actually going to be our first Blister Speaker Series of the new school year with our guest Claudio Calori, who is coming into Crested Butte fresh from wrapping up an amazing end of the World Cup mountain bike season in Snowshoe, West Virginia. Okay, now please go take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.